I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the London Review Bookshop. It's a real pleasure to welcome Lara Feigl and Lauren Elkin. Uh, Lara's a professor of English literature at King's College London, a novelist and a cultural historian. Her books include The Group, Free Woman, The Love Charm of Bombs, and most recently the book we're here to celebrate this evening, Look, We Have Come Through, a biblio-memoir exploring her own relationship with the work of D.H. Lawrence. She'll be in conversation this evening with Lauren Elkin, whose most recent book, number 9192, was celebrated here with a rowdy event uh, last year, <laughs> and who is also the English translator of Simone de Beauvoir's previously unpublished novel, The Inseparables. They'll be in conversation for about 45 minutes, following which there'll be time for questions from the floor with the roving mic right here. So if you have a question, then uh, stick up your hands. Welcome, welcome, <laughs> welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone for coming out tonight. It is a joy and a pleasure to see all of you here. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking to Laura about her fantastic book about D.H. Lawrence. And I'm also really eager to hear what you guys all think about D.H. Lawrence and how Laura might um, help us think about him or, or, or reconceptualize our thoughts about him in the 21st century at this particularly precarious moment at which we find ourselves. Um, I'm going to scoot back a little bit because I feel like I'm That's true. like kind of looking back to you and like a good, in my theater training is that you must always cheat outward to the audience. So um, I am really uh, kind of fascinated to find myself here tonight talking to you about D.H. Lawrence because he's such a part of my past. I did my master's on him at NYU in 2003 and wrote about him in my PhD about over 10 years ago. And I was fascinated by him in 2003. By 2011, when I defended my PhD, um, I was writing about Wolf's kind of preoccupation with him, how she, she imagined that she saw him on um, train platforms in Italy, and, but also kind of didn't like his work and said kind of catty things to friends and letters about what it means to do eurythmics in front of a herd of highland cattle. Um, and so she's, she's kind of both mesmerized by Lawrence and, and you know, irritated by his system 
systems building and his, you know, phallus worship and and all of that. You know, trees falling and killing lesbians and, and things like that it was not not Wolf's cup of tea, so to speak. But she also really respected him as a writer. So I am very pleased to have Laura's book. You know, to to sort of. I don't know. I was I really enjoyed reading it and sort of revisiting the things that I really appreciated about him. And I loved the way that your reading of Lawrence, um, you're ready to argue with him, but also to allow him space to be wrong and to be ambivalent and to be lots of different things at the same time. So yeah, thank you for your brilliant work. And and I wonder, you know, if you could just get us started by reflecting a bit on on why Lawrence, why now, why now for you, and why now for us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, his his relationship with Wolf is is fascinating, and she's kind of a window in a way into the many women who have been fascinated by him and sort of had moments of hating him and moments of um, of sort of loving him despite her better judgment and 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 vice versa. And I guess that was part of what drew me to him was sort of reading about women and I admired and their relationships with him and. I guess for me, it all began slightly ridiculously with a, with a job interview. I was, we, as academics, we, we sort of know about the, the precariousness of academic life. And I was in a temporary job at King's, where I still am, thankfully, and was applying for everything going. And there was a job at Nottingham to be a, a lecturer in D.H. Lawrence studies. So I applied, as you do, and got shortlisted, as I didn't expect to do, and found that, and sort of hadn't read Lawrence since I, <laughs> I had discarded Sons and Lovers uh, as a teenager, sort of knowing that he was this name of someone who wrote sexy books, but finding that it wasn't really and, and that I didn't, I found it a bit oppressive for one reason or another. And so suddenly at 30, I was having completely avoided him as an Oxford undergraduate in the late 90s, which we could come back to that sort of period where, where Lawrence wasn't really studied. Suddenly at 30, I read my way through the major novels and was completely seduced and captivated in a way I just didn't expect. And, you know, looking back, there are so many, you know, we can read Anais Nin's book on Lawrence saying basically he was a woman, he looked into the core of women. And I get, I felt that reading Women in Love. I felt that Ursula and Gudrun, I felt the energy of his desire to create a new kind of modern woman and sort of what it might mean as, as, as a young woman to sort of step out of the world of previous generations and say this is going to be a new kind of life not defined by being a wife and a mother. And I also just felt the, the sort of attraction of these women, partly because of his, the intensity of their bodily lives and his openness to female bodily life, but also to bodily life in general, saying this is what sort of writers need to write about. And so by the time of my interview, I was sort of ready to get this job. I turned up dressed as Gudrun and some <laughs> green stockings, thinking, how, they, how can they give it to anyone else when no one will love Lawrence as much as I do? And I was confronted. I thought maybe everyone will be dressed as, as Gudrun. But no, they were all dressed as Lawrence. So I was confronted <laughs> by five men with beards. <laughs> and unsurprisingly, one of them got this job because he'd actually you know, written some books about Lawrence. And I then was sort of left with this desire to to write about him and I immediately said to my editor I want to write a book about Lawrence and he was from the previous generation who had done studied nothing but Lawrence at Oxford and was a sort of was delighted that a young woman wanted to write about him and said right let's sign the contract 
tomorrow. And I was also wanting to write about Doris Lessing. So it was a particular relief to him, I think, that there was this sort of old fashioned white man to set against her and that I could, he could take both books at once. So we, I signed it. And then I sort of thought, OK, I'll start teaching a course on Lawrence to sort of think my way into it and taught an undergraduate course where we kind of read our way through. And I found that actually there was a lot else beside the four major novels that I'd fallen in love with and that I didn't quite know how to cope with something like The Plumed Serpent, his more sort of difficult um, sort of gnarly books where, you know, we really are dealing with and, and, and sort of reading Kate Millett alongside them. And so I'm sure you all know Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics in 1970, sort of redefined feminism and criticism and our attitude to the sort of great male dinosaurs of a previous generation and cancelled a large number of male writers from Norma Mailer to Lawrence and I think her book has been so necessary and so exciting um, in, in the world that's opened up. I think that now having spent several years with it I can sort of also I'll sort of argue with it in a more clear and forthright way than I could when I first read it. And so sort of I can see, I certainly sort of think totally different from from her about Lady Shatley's Lover. But there's so much in, in it that she needed to say and that needed to be said. And at that point, reading her, I sort of thought, I'm not ready to write about Lawrence. I don't, I'd actually much rather write about women. And I so sort of by way of, of kind of doing something for the project, I went to meet Kate Millett and her, her kind of farm that she has sort of feminist farm in upstate New York and sort of talked to her. And she had had a tree planted by Doris Lessing. And it sort of helped clarify that actually what I really wanted to do at that point was write about Doris Lessing. And I had, a, you know, I had my Lessing phase, I then wrote a novel. Um, and interestingly, Lawrence was sort of kind of in the background because Lessing, who was more or less Millett's contemporary, uh, loved Lawrence and it was partly that she was always herself unwilling to define herself as a feminist and sort of so it was a way to kind of argue with the feminist to say oh wasn't Lawrence wonderful at kind of writing you know writing the body those wonderful latch she talked about him as being fiery and lambent um, but it's interesting that quite a lot of other feminists like Angela Carter also loved him she sort of shouted out he's a sister at a feminist event <laughs> um, Susan Sontag talked about herself as, as becoming Mrs. D.H. Lawrence she talked about Lawrence as the greatest writer of, of her century um, so there were all these and I, so, so I was sort of amassing a sense of Lawrence as being this sort of huge figure that women had grappled with over the decades and indeed over, over the century and sort of came to the point just before lockdown where I wanted to sort of add my voice and I wanted it to be a book that tackled his reception and, and his readers as much as um, what he'd written and that sort of really set his work kind of head on against our world and the ways in which we're still sort of living out a version of the modernity that he kind of created and reviled and uh, but sort of nonetheless played a part in mm. bringing it to being. Yeah, that was one of the really interesting passages in your book. You, you make this argument that um, the men and women that Lawrence was writing about were still basically Victorians. You know, they were they had inherited the enlight inheritors of the Enlightenment and the kind of Enlightenment way of thinking about the world, but were still kind of formed by the 19th century. And that we ourselves are perhaps the characters that Lawrence was dreaming of or trying to write into being. There's this kind of lag. Yeah, I mean, that was his argument, really, was that he said, we, our version of modernity is kind of still created by the Enlightenment. And that made me think, sort of yeah that we that we have precisely that sort of time gap from from him and that yeah. we're sort of living out a world that he couldn't quite know what it would be in a way yeah um 
But so at the same time, I, I want to now telescope in really closely because you do some amazing close readings of Lawrence in this book. And, and the book is so much as I want to talk about today about criticism. Um, and it's a kind of, you know, in a way, a kind of coded manifesto for criticism and for the importance of writing about writing. You know, you say at one point, I think that books are made to be to be written about as much as they are to be read. And I obviously agree. Um, mm -hmm. And and so I wonder if you could talk a bit about his writing itself, like the textures of it, the rhythms of it, the incantation of it. Like, what is it that that is it about the writing that like, you know, you that Lessing found lambent or that you find so, so intriguing? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really like at the sentence level that Lawrence seduces, embarrasses, sort of repels, that it, all, all that happens. Um, and the kind of main thing is obviously those repetitions. There's, there's a sort of helpful, it can sort of lead us into yeah, sex as well. Yeah, maybe read from it, the book as well. I mean, I Sorry. could read from the book maybe a bit later, but I'll just read you some Lawrence from the yeah. book, so, which is the kind of passage um, with which I begin my chapter on sex, where we have Ursula and Birkin having sex for the first time in Sherwood Forest. And I think it's just quite helpful for thinking through the repetitions. Um, so she had her desire of him. She touched, she received the maximum of unspeakable communication in touch. Dark, subtle, positively silent. A magnificent gift and give again. A perfect acceptance and yielding. A mystery. I'll just skip along. She had her desire fulfilled. He had his desire fulfilled. For she was to him what he was to her. The immor immemorial magnificence of mystic, palpable, real otherness. So you can feel there this sort of repetition the kind of she had her desire fulfilled he had his desire fulfilled he never he's never saving words and often the same word the kind of touch there's touch runs through that passage there's sort of she touched he touched they touched and it's it's not so it becomes not so much a description of what's going on as a kind of evocation of the sensuality of the experience in words um, and I think you need to read quite, you know, Lawrence is so difficult to quote, and maybe I've just done it. So there, there can be a kind of ridiculousness in quoting sort of passages out of context. But I think when you read a sustained piece of writing, there is just a feeling of sort of entering an entire language world um, and an entire sensual world with that. Um, that we get through it. And there's also kind of, there's a kind of clunkiness, not a clunkiness maybe, but a clumsiness. Like he, one of the great things about Lawrence is that it's so sort of worked, like everything's in its way perfect, but it's also so willfully imperfect. And he, his mode of drafting was to write very quickly a book in like a few weeks, maybe six weeks, and then to sort of put it aside for a few weeks and then write the entire book again in six weeks. Wow. And so it's kind of, and he'll do that like four times for each book. And so you get a sense that something's been really worked at and perfected, but also that it still retains its kind of first draftiness. Um, and so, you know, the sentence like, a magnificent gift and give again, like, what does that really, it's sort of syntactically wrong. Um, but somehow in the context of the writing, it's like he, he doesn't care because he's, I guess partly because he's a poet and he's sort of used to writing different kinds of lines and he'll just stick them in there and yeah. he'll sort of allow it to be, um, yeah, the sort of experience turned into language rather than mm -hmm. sort of starting with a language in a way. It sounds almost, I mean, just listening to you read it a little bit Steinian, um, I know Deborah's thinking about Stein a lot. I'm thinking about Stein a lot, but the kind of repetitiousness of touch, touch. Um, I don't know. I just I wonder to. I wrote about Lawrence at first as a modernist, and I rereading Women in Love for today. I was like, I almost don't remember why I thought this was such a modernist novel. Do you see him as a modernist? Do you think of him that way? I feel I've got to the point with teaching modernism where I know less. Like I have less of a sense of what modernism is than I. <laughs> I did. don't think. I think I do think he was a modernist because he's like just head on in in sort of creating um, 
you know, his, his sort of modern movement and finding a way to write that. I think he, in his essay, Poetry in the Present, he talks about the need to find a kind of poetry that sort of writes right into the present. Um, and I think that, you know, you can feel that in so much of his writing. And I think, yes, it makes him a modernist. I think he is finding new... Um, new forms of living and new ways of writing them mm -hmm. that sort of do make him. Um, I think, I mean, I, I'm not a sort of Stein expert, and I, but for me, it feels very different, the kind of repetition. It feels um, maybe more deliberate, like, I mean, which isn't to say that Lawrence isn't deliberate, but that it's this, this sort of... Um, it's not like, like with Stein, it feels like there's a kind of pleasure in, in the sounds of the words, which I don't think Lawrence, it's not like he hears the word and thinks, let's repeat it and see where we go with that. It's more like he's, it's kind of from an inside place writing out. Right. Which, does that make sense? Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah. I mean, it's like he wants the words to still have this reference that maybe Stein is, is leaving to the side to play with. Yeah, in a way, he only wants the reference. Like, there's a yeah. side of him that hates language and that sort of mm. wants it to disappear. He sort of he wanted us so much to be bodily creatures rather than linguistic ones, mm -hmm. and so the kind of huge challenge for him. He it's interesting. He always writes about painters rather than mm -hmm. writers. Like he finds it easier to imagine himself as a painter and, and sort of you know spent lots of his late life doing rather terrible paintings and kind of trying hard to get them <laughs> shown. I mean, sort of in their way, great. I think, um, but. He find he, I think he found it really difficult that his vocation was was a verbal one, mm -hmm. and and yet he sort of he didn't want children to learn to speak. Like there was a side of him that wanted language eliminated. Yeah. Um, and yet he's got to find a way to do to, to sort of make the world through words. And so in a way, the repetitions are, are kind of saying that that he's not a wordsmith. That he's not someone who's sort of fiddling away with sentences. Mm -hmm. He's just someone who has to throw words at the world because that's what like that. But but the world is sort of central mm -hmm. always. Mm -hmm. Um, I wonder if I could segue a little bit to talking about Lawrence and feminism a bit more, um, just because of that passage that you read. Um, I was rereading the, the bit that Beauvoir writes about Lawrence in The Second Sex today. Um, and she starts out like sounding like she's on his side, you know, like kind of praising his the kind of parallelism of, you know, he had his pleasure of her and she had her yeah. pleasure of him, but that in the end he's like a creature of the phallus and all, all is phallic. I wonder... How, yeah. you, how you see him vis-a-vis -vis feminism or... I mean, it's interesting feminism. because I think Beauvoir and Millet both begin by loving him. And it's sort of, it's so different from Millet's, like, other chapters in a way. I think she, you know, there's much more affection for Lawrence than there is for any of her other men. Um, and similarly with Beauvoir, um, she has this idea of sort of a, a genuine equality in sex. And she really feels like Lawrence almost gets it. Yeah. And in a way, but with both of them, their sort of this, the kind of intensity of their rage comes through the intensity of their disappointment because he's almost what they want a man to be. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, then we get to these uh, these sort of challenges of of the kind of later. I mean, Lawrence has so many phases, and I think the, the sort of real challenge is, is the essay apropos of Lady Chatterley's Lover, where he sort of makes explicit ideas that in the book. In, in Lady Chatterley's Lover itself, aren't a much more sort of being worked through and much more ambivalent and much more sort of part of a larger spectrum of ideas. But there he really pushes, he's, it's a kind of essay written at a very embattled moment because he'd realised that Lady Chatterley's Lover wasn't going to be published and that it wasn't even really going to be able to put on, on sale. And um, 
he sort of said, this is my idea here, and it was about the phallic marriage, and it's that mm-hmm. power of passage that they both are enraged by. Um, and it's sort of saying that the point of sex, the idea is that, that sex sort of transforms us and remakes us, and that a relationship between two people can sort of lead to their mutual destruction and then their mutual remaking, which is, I think, a very you know compelling idea and one that sort of Beauvoir loved and that we get throughout his writing. But it's only really in Lady Chatterley's other that it becomes all about the phallus, that the phallus is the, the organ because it's like the blood of one person and then it's a bodily organ that sort of brings shared blood. Um, it sort of becomes all about that. And he didn't need, you know, he, of course, he did need to make it explicit, because that's what Lawrence did. Any idea he had, he had to sort of push to its extreme mm-hmm. and see how it sounded. But I don't think we have, like, he did that, you know, in any number of ways. And, and lots of those those sort of formulations were, were mistakes. But I, for me, you don't have to sort of take that extreme version of, of a thought and sort of read it back into everything. And I think they're wrong to sort of read it mm. in, as, as the voice of Lady Chatterley's lover. And that the kind of big problem there is is to sort of see Lawrence's male characters as the voices of the novel. Mm-hmm. So um, for Miller, Mellors becomes, you know, Mellors makes some appalling statements about sort of his wife's clitoris being a kind of beak sort of pecking at him and, and sort of hating the idea of, of, of kind of women having orgasms except simultaneously with men, etc. Um, but the point for me is that that is a scene in which Connie, who's really got the voices of the book from the start, is furious with him and sort of goes off in a half and they have to sort of have a whole fate, you know, they, they have to make up and, mm-hmm. it, and he changes through it. Like Mellors changes more than any character in, in that book. Um, and that's what gets lost if we're sort of reading, you know, treatises into novels. Um, but I think for me, nonetheless, it's sort of, I find it very energizing to sort of read, and you know, it feels with both Millet and, and Beauvoir that they've found a way to write literary criticism that's like urgently writing into what our lives are about mm-hmm. and um, and how men and women can can sort of find ways to live together. Mm-hmm. And that and part of what makes Lawrence so interesting is that he sort of brought that up for feminists and, and gave them sort of gave substance to some of those debates mm-hmm. and sort of gave a kind of endlessly um, available text mm-hmm. for, for sort of feminism to confront, mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, I didn't want to yeah. cut you off. Do you do you want to read from any of it? And I'm wondering if you want if you're wanting to read from the bits that are more kind of personal and autobiographical, or the bit that's bits that are about. Yeah, I mean, I could read the beginning, or mm-hmm. I could, but maybe not. I don't know. No, what it's do up you to think? you. No, no, whatever. I'm I'm just really I'm intrigued just to to continue the conversation. But yeah, how how I ask my next question depends on which part of the book you read. Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, I I could read the beginning to sort of set the scene, but then I could also read a kind of if you want to kind of home in on a you know. A, a theme, we could also do no, that. No, 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 no. Maybe you should read from the beginning. I mean, I wonder if, yeah, I'm sort of wondering if I should, um, yeah, it's probably not the time to sort of read my book, but if I should <laughs> find something where I'm arguing with but him. But also, more, whatever but, you want to keep talking about, you know, please yeah. feel free to steer it yourself. You know. Okay, I'll just read the, the beginning as a sort of interlude, but then we can kind of go back to maybe the sort of more argumentative, because the beginning is really sort of why I found the sort of particular moment of homing in on Lawrence. I've got no idea about the names of the birds that wake us here in the mornings. I don't even know how to tell their calls apart. The little chirrups, the squawks, the glissandos that are easier to call song. But thankfully I have D.H. Lawrence to guide me. It seems when we hear a skylark singing as if sound were running into the future, running so fast and utterly without consideration straight on into futurity. Is that a skylark I hear? Or did the future they ran into so recklessly 
turn out to be a future in which they died out. I am here waking in a village in West Oxfordshire with two children and the ghost of D.H. Lawrence because two weeks ago England went into lockdown and there was a scrambled game of musical chairs. We were to be enclosed within our households for several months. But what constituted a household? If we were to be thrown back into the nuclear families we had thought some combination of feminism and modernity had overcome, how were those not in families to arrange themselves? If you didn't already live with your partner, you were encouraged by the government either to move in with them or to say goodbye for months. So in the days that preceded lockdown, I hastily rented out our London flat and rented a cottage in Oxfordshire. We would be among the lucky few to have a garden. We would be near enough my partner that we could just about describe ourselves as one household. I locked down with him, with my two-year-old daughter, an eight-year-old son, and with D.H. Lawrence. Lawrence is a necessity. I have agreed to write a book on him. This seems to me the moment for a new approach to Lawrence, now that we're no longer mired either in the Lawrence worship led by F.R. Levis in the 1950s or in the repulsion and condemnation led by, led by Kate Millett in the 1970s. But Lawrence is necessary to me in another way too. I am frightened by this loss of familiar community, this cutting off from conversation, this uncertainty about whether I'm still part of the academic community I had an ambivalent relationship with in the first place. I have turned to Lawrence for urgent literary companionship, hoping he will make, help me make sense of the new world we found ourselves in. He promises to be well suited to this. He was so adept himself at isolated living, so good a writer on extreme forms of proximity, so perpetually an outsider, yet so foundational to his culture. And he's turning out to be an ideal guide as I navigate my new closeness to birds and flowers. Oh, thank you. That was tantalizing. Um, there's some great stuff about birds and flowers in the book. I was really impressed. Um, lots of trudging through mud, <laughs> but, you know, in an interesting way. Um, so that that's good, because that, that sort of gives me the segue to the other aspect of this book, which is, you know, just as compelling as the stuff about D.H. Lawrence is the kind of um, the, the memoir part of the biblio memoir, um, you know, portmanteau word. Uh, I wonder... I don't know. I mean, so there's there's an aspect to the book that makes sense. You know, you're thinking about D.H. Lawrence and sex and you are a woman, you know, in your prime. And that is part of life, for, if you're lucky, um, as the mother of an almost four-year-old. Um, but but then there's the more unexpected readings of Lawrence that, that really kind of shine in this book. And that's like Lawrence and parenthood. This is a man who didn't have children, who, you know, was somewhat responsible for taking his wife away from her children, um, shockingly. Uh, so and so, but you read him as as a kind of companion, someone to turn to when you're having trouble raising your children. It's so unlikely. I wonder if you could talk a bit about how those two elements of the book sit together, and and more specifically about yeah, D. H. Lawrence as as a parenting guru. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, somehow it was sort of yeah. I sort of structured the book through these kind of eight thematic chapters from the unconscious to apocalypse, and somehow it was clear that sex would come in the middle, but the parenthood would, would kind of be parallel. I think Lawrence is uniquely good on children for his generation. There just aren't many other modernists of that generation who are so curious about children, about their feelings, about their bodies. We can think of those amazing scenes in The Rainbow, say where uh, the, the Anna is sort of waiting for her mother to give birth and her stepfather is kind of waiting with her sort of her little snuffling body, sort of feeding the cows together. And he's really curious about how children experience the world. Um, and 
the more I sort of delved into him biographically, I became interested in Frida's impact on that and his impact on her, that he, when they got together, she didn't think they were eloping. She thought they were going off to have an affair in, in, in Germany. And for him, this was like he'd, he'd found his marriage and he wrote to her husband, uh, sort of not really with her permission, like with her knowledge, but not, I would say, her permission, um, saying, uh, Frida and I are having an affair and she's going to want to leave you. Um, and that, you know, there was no way she was going to get custody after that. He sort of created a situation in which she was, she lost her children. And, and her parents were saying, just, just quietly leave him and, and take the children and then you can meet Lawrence. Like there were kind of saner ways to do it. Um, and so that created this situation in which on the one hand, Frida was there sort of mourning her children. He was kind of refusing to engage with her grief, refusing to like create a situation in which he could be a stepfather for them. And on the other, he is writing beautifully about children and she's having to sort of read those descriptions and presumably she's fueling those descriptions. Like it was her grief and her descriptions of her children that led him to be interested in children. So I was interested in sort of those dilemmas. And in the midst of that, I became sort of peculiarly interested in his, his advice on childcare because he wrote, in 1922, which, I mean, we sort of the modernist question is so interesting. Like, 1922 was the year when all other modernists were writing their sort of major groundbreaking mm-hmm. books. And Lawrence wrote not one but two really, really cranky arguments with basically with psychoanalysis. With, and, and not, he didn't really understand psychoanalysis and hadn't read Freud, but he wrote these two books arguing with Freud. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second one, Fantasia of the Unconscious, which is the sort of more interesting one, in a way becomes a kind of... As, as everything does in Lawrence, a sort of theory of society and how we should change it. And it becomes about from right from the beginning, like how do we educate our children differently to create a better society? And the argument is really that we should educate them less and that as parents, we should leave them alone more. And I guess it was partly what I needed to hear in, in lockdown. You know, this was this period of homeschooling, of feeling like every day you were sort of shaping your children. And if you didn't do another sort of five mass worksheets, they were going to kind of never pass any exams and have lives. And here was Lawrence saying, oh, no, no, not mass. And oh, no, don't just leave them to it. Sort of send them off into a field and see who, <laughs> who they become. And I found it hugely liberating. And I... It also sort of confirmed for me, I guess, a feeling that we do, that our generation does like overmold our children and, and has this sense of them as people that we're somehow responsible for sort of forging rather than just seeing them as people we're sort of waiting to find out who they are. Mm-hmm. And alongside that was his, it was his sort of his ideas about mood and anger and his sense that we should all be sort of less afraid of anger and more willing to allow sort of negative moods to be part of the sort of flux of moods in our daily lives and he said if you feel angry with your children just sort of shout at them and then move on um and I at that point was sort of very much saying like never raising my voice and and well trying never to raise my voice and sort of trying to sound sort of patiently curious when you know when they were driving me mad and I started just sort of yeah being myself more and I found that really mm-hmm. helpful I don't know yeah. if you reading it it sort of changed your ideas about childhood not <laughs> changed is perhaps too strong a word but it was a really nice kind of tonic after a lot of you know like I spend some time scrolling on Instagram late at night exactly and like part yeah. of the parenting stuff yeah like, your child is really asking you to love them yeah to sit down and say I feel that you're angry it's okay to exactly be angry. yeah yeah um, and it is okay to be angry but it's also okay for the parent to, to be angry yeah, and Lawrence just sort of says, don't overwhelm them with your feelings. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, like, don't tell them that you're upset because you love them. Yeah. It's yeah, sort yeah. of too much. Why should they take on your feelings? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and 
Sons and Lovers is a kind of book about what happens when a mother takes sort of inflicts her feelings on, on yeah. her son too much yeah. and he can't sort of grow up and he can't yeah. develop his own sort of independent yeah. um, relationships and uh, it's maybe slightly determined yeah. there and there's maybe slightly too much sort of anger with his own poor mm. mother but um, but I do find it compelling. Yeah. What do you think Deirdre Lawrence would have recommended I do today at the soft play center when my, my son hit another girl when she was coming down the slide? I mean I think he would have seen that as a healthy expression of like <laughs> I think you would have just said, like, yeah, yeah children are brutal, aren't they? It's like, this is what life is like. <laughs> the poor thing, she was not expecting to come down the slide and get a little tap-tap on the face, but that's what happened. Yeah, I guess um, she has to learn to, like, <laughs> hit back and move on. <laughs> I love that. Okay, cool. Um, well, so another thing that I want to ask you about before we, you know, start turning things out and, and asking people in the audience what, what they want to talk about um, is your really brilliant reading of Lawrence and eco-criticism and, and more specifically the kind of language that gets used importantly, but, you know, possibly problematically by organizations like Extinction Rebellion, who are trying to motivate people to sort of wake the hell up and change the way they're living because, you know, things are dire and, and extreme. But D.H. Lawrence writing at a very different time when people are not, you know, talking about the Anthropocene and climate emergency um, offers you a really kind of weighty and important way of, of navigating the language around climate change. I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about Yeah, I mean, I think sort of... It it's one thing you could sort of mention is that Lawrence is really having a moment now that it's not only me, that there have been sort of four books about Lawrence in the last uh, in the last year, all, all by women, which is sort of really exciting. What's the fourth? The Rachel um, Cusk, the friend? So there are the two novels. There are Rachel Cusk and oh, right, Alison McLeod, and then yeah. there's Frances Wilson's biography. Right. Um, and I think part of, I mean, none of them are particularly about nature, but I think part of what makes Lawrence so sort of um, ready for being taken on by our culture is his attitude towards nature, that he very easily saw that humans sort of over-prioritized our, our role in the world and very easily saw that we were, um, I suppose, you know, both loved and feared modernity. And I think his attitude towards modernity is sort of really helpful in, I guess, passing our own. Like, there was a side of him that... Um, that sort of thought that all modern progress was terrible because it was taking us away from this sort of idyllic landscape that we'd once had and that we were destroying nature with every sort of, every, you know, building we built and, and sort of, um, and train we brought into the world. But there was another side of him that saw us as always questing forwards and modernity as being sort of our natural expression of ourselves um, and in a way saw sort of nature as part of that and the thought we couldn't sort of distinguish between uh, I guess nature and culture um, and I think he's very helpful for sort of seeing the ways in which now there's maybe a tendency to sort of disapprove of human life and modernity and partly just because he expressed you know for, he'll sort of always push ideas to the extreme and then he'll also say the opposite so we have Birkin in Women in Love saying to Ursula that he sort of dreams of a world in which humanity had died out and there's only the grass and the hair sitting up. And she's horrified by it and says, but what about humans? And he said, well, why, why, not, why not just get rid of them? And I suppose it sort of made me see that that, that, that is, is still a sort of tempting view for us, mm -hmm. that it's kind of the, the more we sort of hate what humans are doing to, to nature, the more that we're sort of pushing ourselves in that direction. Mm -hmm. um, but yet alongside this, it's not like Lawrence is saying, 
that that's not a sort of view we, we can allow. He's sort of saying we should constantly, in a way, be, be sort of toggling between those views. And in the midst of all this, are his absolutely brilliant descriptions of encounters between often individual humans and animals. And I think what he's so good at, if we think of like a poem like The Snake, where um, where Lawrence sort of finds a snake at his water trough and, and his instinct is to sort of kick it away, but then he, he sort of thinks actually, you know, he's the noble one, I'm sort of, I'm, I should be more humble in, in the face of this. Or, or if we think of, you know, the story of the fox that you mentioned earlier about um, two women sort of encountering a fox and sort of learning to respect it. Um, he's always, the kind of otherness of the animal is honoured um, without him sort of overdoing that somehow, that he's not anthropomorphizing them, but they're sort of as alive as we are. They're kind of as fully thinking, feel, well, fully sort of feeling creatures as we are. Mm. Um, and I think those encounters cumulatively add up to a sort of vision of nature that we can get a lot from. Mm-hmm. What's, what's his vision of nature? <laughs> if you could spell it out. <laughs> what can I mean, we get really, from Lauren? Really that, in one, one in which... That otherness. Yeah, one, the one in which there's sort of, we're surrounded by otherness and nature yeah. is sort of stranger than we might allow it to be. Yeah. Um, but that it's also a kind of, that we have to sort of easily accept it as a mm. part of our lives and not sort of, um, not sort of see it as, as kind of pristine and separate from mm. us. Yeah. Um, Wonderful passage about your cat and a mouse <laughs> being let out of, from the city. It's city life. Um, it's very polite and well-behaved city life into the, 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 the countryside where it can, oh, this mouse is meant for me and I am meant for it and together what adventures we will have. <laughs> but I will leave it to you guys to, to read the book to find out what happens to the mouse uh, or the cat. Uh- Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Um, so questions, thoughts, concerns, yes, in the back. <laughs> We've got a mic. <laughs> I was really struck by what you said about um, not being able to quote Lawrence or um, something being damage being done if you took him out of context. And I wondered if there's, if that says something about our literary method, because I think about writers like A.S. Byatt, who, you know, really takes on quite a lot about Lawrence, but I wouldn't say is very rich you know, if you quote her, um, or if that says something about the way literature is now being written in fragments which are quotable. Um, so I wonder what the ramifications essentially are for literature. Uh, thinking about that question, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's not that aren't quotable lines from Lawrence. Um, I think particularly in his essays, he often, you know, he's, he's great at aphorisms. So there's a side of him that, that sort of does lend himself to it. I think it's more that... Um, 
his style is in the in the sort of fiction is so much about sort of building up a mood that it's sort of to take a tiny bit of that mood out of context doesn't allow it to have developed. Um, and I don't think there are many writers who rely on that or who, who make that their method. And it's partly because he himself was so interested in mood. He talked about wanting to go beyond the old stable ego of character. Like he didn't think that we, we that, char- that sort of notions of character, of personality um, were right for us. He thought we weren't, we were sort of more driven by mood than by personality. So it's sort of less that we are this kind of person encountering the world than, than that we're sort of this person in this mood shifting to this mood. And the novels sort of allow for that in a way that doesn't sort of break, break down, I guess. Does that make sense? Um, I had a question about the bibliomemoir sort of aspect of it, because I, I really admired your book on Doris Lessing, and I liked particularly how you were balancing writing about her life whilst writing about your own in a very frank way. Um, did that experience sort of leave you thinking, yes, I definitely I want to do more of this. I want to do more first person writing where I'm really having to, you know, put myself out there on the page. Or did you just feel you had to carry on writing like that? Because it, it's a, I'm, I'm, I haven't actually read all of your books, I admit. But, you know, I imagine that was a little bit of a, a change in style. Is that is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. It's a good question. Um, yeah. So with Lessing, it sort of happened. Um, I was, so many of my books have developed from, from sort of mishaps, but that sort of began with thinking I might write her biography um, and sort of somewhat being encouraged to think that I might. And then when it didn't happen, I was sort of immersed in the Golden Notebook. At a point in my life, I was sort of in my mid-30s, I was feeling that life wasn't turning out quite as I'd sort of imagined it would. I was that sort of feeling of middleness and confronting, I guess, failure and um, and a sort of lack of faith in the structure that I believed in, a sort of marriage and a, a kind of version of sort of socially structured family life um, and the golden notebook was like making sense of that for me it was showing me that you could find a form a literary form in which to sort of ex- express ambivalence and doubt and when I knew I wasn't getting the biography I sort of said that I was saying this to people sort of but, but it's not someone said oh well, you're we're well out of that you just spent sort of years reading lesson and I said but I need to do that like that's <laughs> I don't know who I am without her right now and he said that's quite weird you should probably write about that <laughs> and it was sort of good advice and it sort of and it made sense also there were sort of challenges with lessing not dissimilar from Lawrence of she left behind some children when she left her first marriage. And, and sort of in confronting that question, I was inevitably thinking about what it was like to be a mother and what are the most difficult aspects of being a mother. And it felt more honest in a way to make my workings explicit in answering those biographical questions. Um, and also, I sort of had always identified with writers to probably rather extreme degrees, sort of for in, since childhood. And I was interested in that and in sort of testing the limits of it with, with a writer as sort of difficult as Lessing. Like she's not a sort of, she's not always an enticing person. She's, she's a sort of monstrous one as well um so that book then sort of happened and it felt like it had been the right form and then when it came to writing about Lawrence yeah I sort of knew that for me it worked to kind of bring out my workings and that the lesson book was sort of more driven as a kind of quest narrative um in which I was sort of investigating freedom this was less that it was sort of I really wanted to start with Lawrence and think okay what were the things that mattered in his work that, that I feel do still matter in our society. So from sort of nature to, to sex to, to community. Um, and I felt like 
I, I knew that I wanted to sort of write about his work to sort of write up to our times. And then it sort of became that I was, in a way, a prism through which to examine our contemporary attitude towards nature. So it's probably slightly less, it's less driven by sort of writing about myself, but there's quite a lot that happens sort of along the way, I guess. I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, Lauren is also writing about herself. I think I feel like we're sort of part of a generation, particularly maybe of women who are, who are doing this and who sort of are trying to, to sort of give criticism, I guess, a kind of ethical charge mm-hmm. that comes out of the way that our own lives are sort of shaped by it. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you feel that's... Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different, like, kind of shades to um, Bibliomemoire, or if, if that's the word that we want to use for it. Um, I feel uh, like uh, what I'm writing isn't memoir exactly. Mm-hmm. It feels more like, as, as you say, kind of acknowledging the ethical importance of including myself in the frame or or not even including myself in the frame but saying that I'm I'm the camera who's you know <laughs> creating the frame and um you know for intersectional reasons to you know be very clear about where I'm coming from and that mm. this is just one kind of viewpoint on the world and I'm not trying to stand in for women in general um exactly yeah or middle class people in general um but and yeah. I think it allows for also for for doubt, I sort of I like being able to write in a way in which I can say that I haven't yet made up my mind about something, yeah. and that these are the sort of yeah, often contradictory thoughts that I have, and this is where it's going, and sort of somehow allowing the reader to then be part yeah. of that process. Yeah, and I yeah. think if you weren't writing in the first person, you couldn't do yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And there's the importance of you know as a feminist, kind of claiming your right to have a viewpoint, and you know for things that you have to say to not be automatically assumed to be you know narcissistic or or kind of superfluous or gratuitous. Um, and, and that is something that I think women writers have had to claim and kind of you know, mm. say aloud, this is what I'm doing. And, you know, too bad if you don't like it, you don't have to read it. It's fine. Um, and because, you know, women have sort of over the last couple of hundred years, you know, very much been the reading public um, to then kind of give voice to that in the text, you know, acknowledge that the writer and the reader are very often female and that there's a kind of, you know, uh, gendered experience of the world that's being that's sort of creating the encounter with a book as well as you know the encounter of the writing of the book. Um, but you do something really fascinating in this book that um, it's so funny. I remember you, we had a conversation years ago. We were in Paris. You were doing giving a talk at the Ecole Normale Supérieure, I think, um, in the Rue du Mont. And I was telling you I was writing about Martha Gellhorn. And I think you had just been writing about Martha Gellhorn. And you were like, "What are you calling her? Are you calling her Martha or Gellhorn?" I don't know if you remember this conversation. <laughs> no. um, but I remember thinking, "Oh, she's she's like she's really smart. That one's smart. Um, that was a really good question to be asking." And I think that you're someone as a writer who really thinks. Um, kind of outside the box about what's the right way to approach the text and not to kind of adhere to calling the subject one thing or another because mm-hmm. that's convention, but to think about what's the right way to I mean, it's such a fascinating that, question you know, of Lawrence, actually, because he had no yeah. name. I sort of talk at the beginning yeah. about Lawrence as being this writer who, because he, you know, he was burnt as a child, as a child he, so he hmm. sort of couldn't, he had to drop that when he sort of joined posh London society, but he never quite sort of, so he, he had problems with David because of the biblical David and then he sort of he started from like a, as a teenager he started signing himself DHL which is quite peculiar mm. um, and then Frida and her circle sort of developed the name Lorenzo but he didn't it was quite rare for him to call himself Lorenzo mm. and he's a very sort of tricky um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. man to name in that respect yeah 
But what you do in this book that, that I love so much is you kind of dispense with, with you know, uh, page numbers, you know, the kind of administrative appendix you would expect to find at the end, like, oh, if you want to go look up this quote and from Women of Love, you can go look at this edition and this page number. Um, and you say in the note at the end, you know, that stuff is all freely available. If you want to find where he said this, you can go Google it and you'll find it because he's so, he's been so Yeah, and basically with the books that are on Gutenberg, I don't know if you use Gutenberg, but it's a sort of amazing resource. And the books that are searchable on Gutenberg, I just said, okay, like go and search it and use whatever edition you have. With the books that are only available in print, I do page numbers. So it's a sort of, but it's just trying to make those end resources practical Mm -hmm. rather than kind of, fastly sort of for the sake of yeah, it, I guess. exactly. Yeah, exactly. But, but the kind of emphasis on the practicality of it means that the emphasis gets put not because you think footnotes are, you know, too fussy and academic, but because the kind of experience that you're creating is so much about your reading of Lawrence or then the reader's encounter with your encounter with Lawrence rather than fidelity to some kind of conventions of, of reference and citation. Um, and I think that that's something really fascinating about the Biblio memoir, um, that it makes a space for, for encounter and confrontation mm-hmm. rather than for, you know, convention. Yeah. Um, sorry, I went off on one. Hey, Gemma. <laughs> Thank you. Um, it's really hard to find time to write a book when you're um, a mother of very young children and often the only grown-up in the house as well. Um, and I wondered how you approached that and how it, uh, what effect that labour had on how you approached the labour of writing the book. You spoke about about Lawrence's processes of drafting and redrafting. Yeah. Is that something that you could do or, or is that kind of approach to writing a book um, I mean, that's, I think part of what reassures me about Lawrence is that he was a fast writer and, and that sort of makes it okay. I am a fast drafter and I guess that makes it easier. Um, this book was sort of well-structured for the, that period because the chapters themselves aren't that long and they're about one thing. So uh, I would spend like two months reading everything Lawrence had to say about religion and all the criticism of Lawrence and religion. And then I sort of did a little, the kind of broad reading at the beginning and then decided the structure, but then would really home in. And then I would spend a week writing that chapter and it was all fresh in my mind. And it sort of, that meant that, you know, four hours a day or whatever I had sort of was, you know, worked. I think books sort of fine. And the previous uh, novel, The Group, was in quite short sections as well. I think books sort of determine, in a way, your life determines their structure. And it sort of hopefully there's a kind of congruence between the form that you find the book needs to take and the form that your life allows for. And I think often that's... um, I think constraint is a good thing on the whole in in sort of making art. So um, it hasn't often felt like a sort of hindrance. But um, the early books had, like um, my book, The the Love Chum Bombs and The Bitter Taste of Victory, had, you know, months in archives. And I haven't, Lawrence is great because everything, there's a sort of wonderful uh, 10 volume sort of eight volume collected letters which you can have at home um i don't I, you know i think that's the struggle is to find the time in archives that's when you're sort of balancing mm. yes <laughs> yes uh we've got a question at the front got several spinning in my head okay i'm going to try and keep, keep them spinning right down okay um um yeah you were saying interestingly that you know your life determines the, the structure of the novel and I'm sorry the, the book and I was wondering if to any degree the nature of Lawrence's writing 
um, and the, the quality and textures of it. Whether or not that determined the structure and even your, your own style, or did you feel that your own voice was resilient enough against what's quite a, I mean, I still find, in a, you know, in a, still in that very ambivalent place with, with Lawrence, though captivated by what mm. you said, still in an ambivalent place. I'm just wondering how you retain a sense of self when that voice is so potent. Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think he was such an oppositional thinker, and I think that's yeah. part of what I think we have to gain from him now, um, is his his sort of willingness to challenge, and his willingness also to kind of take a really strong point of view, but also think it's opposite. And it feels now like we're surrounded by people thinking sort of strong thoughts and sort of having strong opinions, but they don't often also countenance, like it's usually a different person who's saying the opposite talk. And I think he, that's, that's a great thing for our times. And so I wanted to sort of allow him to, to have those strong thoughts. And I wanted, as well as sort of wanting to express doubt and uncertainty, I wanted to like confront him with also with quite sort of polemical thinking. And so I think compared to other books, it had more of that sort of more polemical voice. Um, but I think I also kept my a sort of work in progress thinking through feeling that maybe we don't get so much in Lawrence. Although maybe we do, you know, in a way. that There, there are certainly, when he sort of situates himself in places and essays, he does allow for a sort of feeling of like, here is life and here are my ideas inflecting each other. Mm, thank you. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. And then we'll we'll sign if there are any questions, which you know that's fine too. Yes, in the front. Thank you. Thank you. Um, having now lived with Lawrence for years at this point, and you referenced at the start how he was kind of absent from a lot of your undergraduate reading, I wonder how you know if you were to teach a class on him, you would approach these novels, this critical material, with students now. What would be your kind of pedagogical approach with Lawrence? Yeah, so I do. I teach every year. I teach a third year BA, a 10 week third year BA course on Lawrence. And we start with Sons and Lovers and we work our way through not just to Lady Chesley's Lover, but then we have a week on the trial of Lady Chesley's Lover and we have a week on feminists' approach to Lady Chesley's Lover. So it's sort of very much kind of living through Lawrence's times, but also living through ours. And it's it's called D.H. Um, Lawrence and the Invention of the Modern Self. And it's really about um, the sort of different ways in which Lawrence was sort of thinking through how the people of his generation were going to be neat. So his conf confrontation with psychoanalysis, his um, sort of new ideas about the role of the body in our life. So sort of reading sexology alongside Lawrence and then through to, yeah, sort of de Beauvoir and Militant and the ways in which they were thinking through the, you know, the, those stages of feminism in opposition to Lawrence, his sort of use for us as an oppositional thinker. And it's been, you know, the book would be totally different without having taught that course. Part of what I found so inspiring is, is how much the students do respond to him. Particularly, I've had several sort of young women over the years kind of really being seduced in the way I guess that I was, sort of one saying, but it's like he's a woman, how, how does he do that? Um, and then they'll read Millet and they'll get very anxious about that feeling. They'll sort of wonder if it was a wrong feeling to have. Um, and we'll sort of talk that through and it feels like 
a sort of really helpful exercise for all of us, I guess, and sort of thinking through, um, I guess, the female relationship with a sort of male voice and, and with the sort of male ventriloquizing of women. And then at the same time, we're thinking through the arguments of, of the Chatley trial, which are really about, like, what is pornography? Um, and I'll sort of say, would well, you think any book should be banned? And the, the sort of immediate answer is no. But then, of course, people, you know, we have quite a lot of book banning now, really. And mm. so sort of generationally, in a way, it's a good generation with whom to think that through, to think to think through sort of at what point do we decide that something is, is too difficult to tackle and what are the gains of taking on difficult books, which is partly what this is all about and presumably with your sort of Art Monsters mm-hmm. project as well, the sort of feeling of like what, what can we do now with, with sort of dead monsters from the past and why, why do we want to be challenged, um, I think is a really helpful sort of question. Okay, I think that we're going to pause here and you can all continue the conversation with Laura up here. Please come admire her boots, which she bought on a D.H. Lawrence pilgrimage to Taos, New Mexico. They are so cool. You know, just since you mentioned dressing up like Gudrun, I didn't think that you would mind publicly calling attention to the boots. Thank you all so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you all here tonight and hope to see you soon. Um, I think that's it. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 